Amen. Welcome to Mansfield Bible Church. We're glad that you're here this morning. The uh, ancient greeting for Easter, the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. I would like for you to greet each other that way just now. The people around you, just greet them. The Lord is risen. Respond by saying, He is risen indeed. Go ahead. I know this happened just like the first hour. I lost everybody right then. I know you said more than the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. The Lord is risen. The Lord has risen. The Lord is risen. Alleluia. Alleluia means praise God. Alal Yah. Praise Yahweh. Praise God. King of kings, Lord of lords. When we look at it, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's the most important truth that we know. The resurrection of the one who is fully God, fully man. The resurrection of Jesus proves the power that we sang about. The power that we depend on, the power that we have in prayer, our whole Christian life depends on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. If he didn't rise from the grave, we're in trouble. We're in deep weeds. And in fact, Paul the Apostle says this in 1 Corinthians 15. says in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Wow. He says also, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all. More than all. Because we lived a life that the object of our worship, the object of our affections, either didn't happen, didn't rise from the grave. And that's the question, right? Did he rise from the grave? If we come at it with an anti-supernatural bent, our tendency is going to be, of course, it didn't happen, right? And in our generation, in our world, that's the tendency. We come at it from a scientific perspective, and we, we look at the evidence from a scientific rather than a legal perspective. Because what we're dealing with here is witnesses, eyewitnesses to the event. And we've got to ask some questions. Are they trustworthy? Are we looking at and listening to the right eyewitnesses or are they somebody that, that uh, fabricated a story later on and it was a story told by the early church? How do we know? What are the, some of the clues that give us a clue that this is in fact a truthful story told by truthful eyewitnesses to actual events that occurred in history? That's the question. That's a mouthful, right? It's a big standard to try to reach for this morning. There's four things that I want us to look at this morning. And it's going to either reaffirm your faith, convince you more, strengthen your faith more. Or my hope is, is that it will bring you to the point of faith. Because I can tell you there's no way that anything that I say this morning is going to bring you to faith. That's a step you've got to take on your own. Nobody can do that for you. Each individual has to take that step. But you base that step on something that the evidence points to, not on something that you think is stupid. And so you've got to think through the issues, but the issues won't lead you there. And in fact, no person can lead you there. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. 
My hope this morning is that you hear his voice, not mine. That you hear his voice in his word, in the holy word of God. My hope is, is that as we talk about these things, you're listening to him. My dog Chip won't listen to any of you. I'm just saying. He'll come and bark at you. He will act like he's going to bite your arm off. But uh, you have a treat in your hand. He's yours, right? He's your best friend for life. And, I'll, and then he'll be sniffing you, waiting for the next treat. I call his voice, and he comes to me most of the time. Sometimes he rebelliously sins. No, he's not a sinner, but he rebelliously does his own thing. But whenever he goes to sniff the trash can or he goes to do something he's not supposed to, and all I got to do is go, eh, and he acts like, I wouldn't do anything. <laughs> he listens to my voice. My hope is that you'll listen to God's voice this morning as we look through the text of Scripture. We're going to look at a several Gospels. We're going to focus on one. We're going to focus on Luke's Gospel. And so I'd like for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, because we're going to begin to look at some of the evidences for the resurrection. Now, the resurrection is something that not only our generation struggled with, but so did past generations. In fact, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, in the first century, writes about this because people were struggling with it then. They were struggling with this idea of resurrection. I love guys who uh, I've read about that were not predisposed to accepting Christ, and they were struggling with this whole issue of resurrection. And in fact, they were trying to figure out if it was true or not, and they were planning to write books that told Christians the resurrection is a hoax, it's a myth, it never happened. One of those was a guy named Frank Morrison. He wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? It's an old classic book. Uh, I would encourage you to read it. Uh, he was a guy that uh, the first chapter of the book says the book that refused to be written because he was going to write a book to refute the resurrection and he ended up, after looking at the evidence, led him to Christ, led himself to Christ through the, or the Spirit of God led him to himself. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorites. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. He was a professor at Oxford, and he was, he was uh, 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 teaching uh, people, and he was, he was uh, uh, an atheist. And he had a couple of buddies, a guy named Hugo Dyson, and you'll know this next name, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. Those two guys led him to Christ. Those two guys, as he talked to them, as he wrestled through the issues with them, they were convincing, and he finally bowed the knee before God. In fact, I love, it makes me laugh, his testimony about it. He says, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. He says, in 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I mean, here he was, a professor, and, 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 he, and he had to admit that Jesus was who he said he was. He says, I did not see then, and this is grace. I mean, I love this statement. He says, I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. Wow. We have a God who even though we may be reluctant, we may be hesitant, we may be struggling Yet when we come to terms with who Jesus is, and the resurrection is a key part of that, 
When we come to terms with who Jesus really is, and I don't say was, I say is because he's still alive, Lee Strobel, a newspaper guy in Chicago, atheist, went to church reluctantly with his wife, ended up coming to Christ and writing the case for Christ, case for faith. All these brilliant people, the resurrection was key. And it's key for us as well. It's key for us to understand. Because when you look at all the world religions, most world religions are built on a philosophical idea. They're built on ideas rather than on people. You have four that, are, that have people as a major part of what they are. One of them is the Jewish religion and Abraham. Abraham's mentioned a lot. We see it in the Old Testament. And yet Abraham never claimed to rise from the grave. And in fact, you can go and see his tomb in Hebron today in Israel. Uh, well, you actually can't go. It's, it's a dangerous place to be. Uh, if you'll show that picture of Hebron, uh, his grave is still occupied. But he never claimed to rise from the grave, right? Buddha's another one who formed a, a whole religious idea uh, based on him. Uh, and, and yet when he was uh, burned on a funeral pyre, cremated... His ashes were spread and uh, they built a tomb over him. Still occupied, still here, not gone. Muhammad, similarly, Islam doesn't claim that he rose from the grave uh, and he still occupies a tomb in Saudi Arabia, Arabia. But when you look at Jesus in Jerusalem, that he was buried there, and you see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in this picture and the edicule that's built over where the tomb would have been, it's empty. And Jesus claimed that he would rise from the grave. And all the disciples claimed that. And so we've got to deal with this claim. In the other ones, we don't have to deal with that claim. We've got to deal with that claim here in Christianity. And the question is, is it true or is it not? Now, I wish that, that uh, we would have been given a whole lot of proofs uh, uh, in the scriptures and said, okay, here's the 10 proofs. Or I really wish Luke would have, in Acts chapter 1, when he says he was with Jesus with him 40 days and had many proofs, I was thinking, couldn't you have written a few down? I mean, give us a list or something or, you know, uh, uh, minutes of the time or something. And yet he didn't because he felt like the simple things that he said here was enough. The simple story was sufficient. And so we have enough to go on and we need to wrestle with these issues. If you want some more of the evidences, I would encourage you to look at C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity uh, or Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, or uh, uh, Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison, uh, or, or to even look at, in fact, if uh, right now media, which we all have an opportunity to be uh, access, uh, just go on our website and you can... Uh, uh, get access to uh, right now media. Uh, there's a guy named, uh, or the detective, J. Warner Wallace, who has a series called Cold Case Christianity. It looks very interesting. I watched the trailer to it. It looked pretty good. But what we have in the scripture is a very simple story, and it means that we need to observe well what we have. We have enough evidence. And so let's look at it and see. Now, if we look at Passion Week, the resurrection was the culmination, the climax of Passion Week. Uh, we have a slide for Passion Week, and I believe that uh, Saturday and Sunday on the bottom should be on the top. So it kind of got out of order there, and I just no noticed it. Uh, so Saturday, if you look down at the bottom, it says Saturday, that's the first day. He was anointed for burial by Mary, the, the uh, sister of Lazarus. 
And then Sunday, on Palm Sunday, he had his triumphal entry. And so he, he, he came in on a donkey and they put the palm leaves in front of him. And it was, we call it Palm Sunday. And he, they were uh, worshiping him and praising him for, as the coming Messiah, the one who was the son of David that was to come. And then on Monday, he threw the money changers out of the temple. You go to the top there. On Tuesday, he debated the religious leaders and Judas received 30 pieces of silver on that day to betray Jesus. On Wednesday, nothing recorded there. Thursday, the Last Supper, which we will celebrate at the end of this service. On Friday, he had his crucifixion. Saturday, another day of silence. And then Sunday, uh, or uh, then, uh, in fact, the second Sunday is not even listed there. The, the key day isn't on the list. Uh, day of resurrection, right? That he rose from the grave. And so you look at that and you realize that the resurrection, the culmination of this whole Passion Week. We look at Luke's gospel and you realize we're not looking at an eyewitness. Luke wasn't an eyewitness to these events. So how did he find out all of this? In chapter 1, in verse 1 through 4, he tells us how he came to write these things. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since, myself, uh, since, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. He investigated. He was a medical doctor that went about used to observing details, and he interviewed different uh, uh, people from the beginning, he must have interviewed Mary, mother of Jesus. And he wrote down what the eyewitnesses told him. It says, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Some think that was an actual person. And yet the name means friend of God. Is he writing all of us so that we would know? I think perhaps he is. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke believes that we can be certain about the resurrection. And he writes about it. And he wants to make sure that we are certain also. And so we look at it and say, what are the details that we need to pay attention to here that will help us to understand what we are reading? Well, the first thing that I'm going to say is, and there, there's four points here that I want to make. The first point is they did go to the right tomb. There was a guy named Kirsip Lake. A professor at Harvard University died in 1949, so he wrote before that. And he came up with the theory that they all went to the wrong tomb. That the women that first morning went to the wrong tomb. That uh, Peter and John, when they ran to the tomb together, uh, that, that uh, they went to the wrong tomb. That the religious leaders and, the, and, and especially the Roman soldiers guarded the wrong tomb. Everybody went to the wrong tomb. How likely is that? Right? And so we're going to look at, at, at some of the evidence for that. In fact, let's read beginning at chapter 23 and verse 50. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea. That's why we get Joseph of Arimathea. And he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, I mean, you don't just walk up to Pilate, right? Unless you're known to him. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, so he would have been known to him. He goes to Pilate. He asked for Jesus' body. 
Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in a rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was the preparation day. The Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath day in obedience to the command. They went and they saw the tomb. That's what the text says. Remember in Bible study methods, you look at what does it say? What does it say? They saw the tomb. They watched, they followed Joseph of Arimathea from the cross to the tomb and they saw the tomb. This wasn't something that they just happened to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, get a GPS coordinate or an address and then they followed it on their cell phones or something like that. They saw where the tomb was. So what you're having to say is that if they went to the wrong tomb, then on 24-1, when it says on the first day of the uh, week, very early in the morning, one uh, gospel writer says it was uh, dark. Another said it was at sunrise. And you think, well, which one was it, dark or sunrise? Well, there's mountains. And so you could have sunrise and it'd still be fairly dark. It says the women, and we know the women, uh, which women? Well, we'll find out in verse 10, it says it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others. So there were more than three women. Why would they send more than three? Well, because they had this big stone to move, and they were already asking the question, we're told by one of the other gospel writers, I believe Mark, saying, who's going to move the stone? I mean, after all, the soldiers wouldn't move the stone for the women. They'd probably just make fun of them. They probably laugh at them as they're struggling against this huge stone. Where we know from, from uh, the gospels that it's a large stone. And it's a, a stone that rolls, but, uh, and it's a rolling stone tomb, but that, that stone was very heavy. And they fixed it where the slope downward is easy to close it. You just remove a, something that's holding it and it rolls down, but to move it back would be a chore. And so they're wondering, these women, they took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. Now, we also know from another gospel writer that there was an earthquake that morning. So you can imagine these women. It's dark. They've gotten up early. They've got the spices they prepared uh, on uh, Friday, uh, right before the Sabbath occurred. And then they, they took these spices. They went back to the original tomb. The sun was just coming up. It was mostly dark, but they could probably see a little bit. They're at night, so they're, uh, or it's dark, so they're, they're traveling in a group uh, for protection, they're trying to figure out how they're going to open this, this, this uh, tomb. And they feel this earthquake as they're moving toward it. I mean, just kind of painting the picture here so that you can kind of get an idea. It was a cold morning. And how do I know that? Because I know it was cold on Friday. Because uh, the disciples were warming their hands over fires we see on Friday night. And so it must have been a cold weekend or at least a chilly one. It says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes like, that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? The living Jesus among the dead here. He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. 
And so they didn't remember the words right off. They weren't looking for resurrection. They were looking to, with spices. They, they appeared to the tomb, not ready to, to say, oh, it's going to be an empty tomb when we get there. They were expecting Jesus to be there. And when his body was not there, they were confused. They didn't know what to do. So to say, as Kirsa Blake said, that the women went to the wrong tomb and then Peter and John went to the wrong tomb and then the guards were guarding the right tomb and or the wrong tomb and then Joseph of Arimathea? It was his tomb, right? If, if, if I told you that somebody went to your house and robbed your house, would you just send your people and say, well, go check it out? Would you take other people's word for it? I wouldn't. Even if I took their word for it, I'd want to go see it. I'd want to go check it out. And Joseph of Arimathea bought the property. He, he, he kept showing up to have the, have the thing built, have the tomb built. It was a newly, freshly built tomb. Don't you think he knew where the tomb was? And if he went to check it out, don't you think he would have checked in? I go, oh, here's the tomb. You guys, you're all messed up. This is the tomb. Don't you think the religious leaders would have loved to have the tomb so that they could produce the body? They produce the body, no resurrection. Christianity done away with. Nobody could produce a body. Everybody went. They saw the tomb. They knew which tomb they were going to. So it wasn't like that they were somehow going to the wrong tomb. Now the question today is, where was the tomb? In fact, you'll go to Israel today and there's about 12 places that people say, oh, here was the tomb or this place was the tomb or that place was the tomb. You have the garden tomb, which uh, is an... uh, Anglican site, they purchased this one location. There's a rock that looks like a skull. There's a, there's a, uh, a tomb there that has a trough in it. It looks like a, where you would roll a stone. And so they'd say, this was the place. And uh, discovered by uh, the guy who uh, uh, wrote, uh, it is well with my soul. He, he had a visitor and they both observed this together. And, and his visitor, a, a, a military man, bought the place. And so you go there and you, you have communion there and you go, wow, this, this, is what it, this, this has got to be the place. It just feels like the place, right? But I, I, there's some piece of evidence to me that is stronger for the Holy Sepulchre side, although I don't like it as well because it's got this church in the way. You know? They got, built this church over the site and they kind of destroyed the site a little bit to get the church there. And, and so you kind of go, well, this is probably the site. Why do I say that? Emperor Hadrian in 135 A.D., Whenever he uh, quelled another rebellion of the Jews, he decided he was going to build temples to the Greek and Roman gods on the, the holy sites of that area. And so in Jerusalem, he built it on two places. One was, which you would expect, the Temple Mount, where the Israel had their temple for years, Solomon's temple, and the uh, uh, Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, so he built one there to Zeus. And then he built another one to Venus. And guess where he built it? Right over the site where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is today. I think that's probably the right site. But it's hard to see exactly how the site looked. And so if that is in fact the site, then there are two locations within that building, within that same building, which are the rock on which he was crucified and the tomb. They were very close together. In fact, we're told in Scripture, in uh, John chapter 19, it says now, Verses 41 and 42, now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. 
and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And that's what we read here. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, and the question is, how close? It says they laid Jesus there. So I have a picture, uh, uh, actually an architectural drawing of the uh, Golgotha, which is the rock where uh, Jesus would have been crucified, and then the side of Jesus' tomb. And they're both within this same building. And this is a large building, but not huge. It's got some huge parts of it. But you go in there, and when you walk in the main entrance down there at the bottom, you go to the right up a flight of stairs, and you're at Golgotha's Rock. And then you can see, almost see, the side of Jesus' tomb, except they created another wall behind it, so you can't quite see it. But if you drew a straight line from one to the other, you're probably not more than about 50 yards away. In fact, if you look at a picture of the inside of the church that somebody took from a great angle... Uh, you'll see two arrows, and they point to, and go ahead and show that picture, uh, the picture inside the church. You have Calvary, which is up there on the second floor, which would be the highest point, would be the, have been the peak of the mountain. And every, if you go up the Via Dolorosa, you notice that you're always going uphill. So you know you're going up a, a high place, which is where they crucified people. They would always find a place that was a high place near a road so everybody could see it happening because they wanted to make a, an example out of them. And then you see down at the bottom a little arrow that says tomb. And, it, and you walk through there, and that, you have to go around uh, this one wall that they put in place. But if you were able to go even that way, you realize, just looking at this picture, you realize it's not that far away. In fact, where the word tomb is is probably the back of that tomb. And so, uh, uh, and, and that picture that you saw early of the edicule or the little building within the dome, uh, that's where the, the tomb would have been. Now, they had to destroy the site. They didn't have a view of archaeology like we did today in, in 325 when Constantine's mom built the, had the church built. But he, they built it according to this diagram. And if you look, there was the hill on the right. It says Golgotha's Rock. You have the outline of the current church. In, and has a red, and then you realize all the yellow stuff is stuff that they carved away. I mean, they carved away the whole tomb just so they could build that little building. It's like, why didn't you just leave the tomb itself? But they didn't. And so, but you see, they were very close together. So if I think about the distances, and I think, okay, from this stage and go about 50 yards, I'm probably maybe at the front of this building. Not that far. I could, if I didn't have all this building in the way, I could see the, the, the front of the building from here. If you were on Golgotha's Calvary, you could see the tomb from there. It was a garden. It was open. It wasn't like a maze. And so you think, I don't think it was possible not to know where the site was. Not only from the fact that it was independent people running to the tomb without other people telling them, but also because it was in such close proximity, I don't see how it could have been missed. And so you have that as one piece of evidence, the nearness of the tomb. They went to the right tomb. The second thing as a piece of evidence, it's kind of obvious when you understand the history of Israel and of this first century is the fact of the women being the first witnesses. Uh, 
on, in 24.1, it says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices. We saw in verse uh, 10 that it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James. Uh, we have in another passage, Salome. It says the others, and so there were more women. And the thing about in a patriarchal society in the first century, uh, they, unfortunately, they did not value the testimony of women. And, so, and that was even true up into Constantine's time. And so you realize that when that church was built, when those things occurred, uh, the early church, if they had fabricated the story like some have supposed, they wouldn't have written it that way. They would have had Peter as the first one. Peter, the apostle. Peter, the one that, that, uh, that uh, so many people look to and, and hold up highly. They would have had Peter and John be the first ones. And they didn't because God values the testimony of these women. God values. And, and so you look at that and you realize this was not a fabricated story written centuries later. This is an honest, truthful telling and recounting of the account as things happened. Because they didn't tamper with the text. They didn't modify it. They didn't change it in any way. And so you see that the uh, uh, the two first evidences. You see the third evidence uh, of the uh, resurrection. It's the psychological change of the disciples. You see that they changed from unbelieving to believing. In verse 9, it says, When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the others. Said who they were, verse 11. But they did not believe the women because the words seemed to them like nonsense. Nobody believes something they think is stupid. The evidence has to point in a direction. And in this case, they thought it was craziness, that it was nonsense, that this didn't make any sense. So Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, so they checked out the evidence. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering himself what had happened. We find out uh, that the other disciple in John's gospel, when he looked and he saw, he believed. And in fact, we see that in verse 8. It says, then the other disciple, and that was John, says, who when he reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed and yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So you have this psychological change. When a person goes through grief because somebody they loved has died, you don't change from grief to joy in three days. You don't just snap out of it. Something significant has had to happen for you to go from, from grief to joy. And that happened with the disciples. And you think, there's nothing that explains this except the resurrection. That Jesus actually came back from the dead. That's the only thing that would make a person move to that position in three days. The person would have to come back in some way. And in Jesus' case, he did. And you look at that, and not only did he come back, but the disciples were willing to die, even being tortured, even being uh, crucified, and they never changed their story. No one would do that for a lie. And so this, the change of their mindset is huge. The linen cloths in the tomb. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. We see that the other disciple believed. And, they were, and this linen cloths were, were powerful in their lives. Why would somebody leave the linen cloths behind? They wouldn't do it. 
In fact, if you, if you try to put the story together with, with them stealing the body, you would first have to say the disciples came up with a plan to steal the body. Now, they didn't believe uh, uh, and they were bewildered when the resurrection actually occurred. I don't think that they were in the mindset to plan that because they weren't expecting that. They were surprised. They were bewildered when it happened. So I don't think that, it, that they did it. But even if they had, say we say, oh, yeah, they did, then we'd have to picture that they would sneak up to the tomb on Saturday at some point or, you know, maybe really early Sunday morning because they wouldn't want to break the Sabbath, but they sneak in. They go past all these sleeping Roman guards that if they were caught sleeping on guard duty, they would be put to death. So it's kind of an incentive to stay awake. But they're all sleeping and you're tiptoeing back. Even if you were able to do that and get all the way to the tomb, right? Now you've got to move this stone. It's not going to be non-noisy because you've got it in a trough. It's going to make some noise on that. And it's scraping against the side of the uh, wall, the face there. So it's going to make a lot of noise. And you don't wake anybody up. Say you even got that far. Then you sneak into the tomb. You're worried that they're going to wake up. So, you, I mean, you would just grab it and run, right? No, they take the time to, they'd have to peel off the shroud because if you look at what he went through and the blood that he, that he expended, and it would have been stuck to the cloth. And they would have had to peel that off. Why would they do that? And then they would take this naked body and they would tiptoe back past the guards. And then they're willing to be crucified and tortured that, that he actually rose from the grave. That does not make any sense. That doesn't fit the evidence that we have before us. What makes a lot more sense is the women showed up at the tomb. They were bringing the spices. They were in a state of grief. They show up to the tomb wondering who's going to roll the stone away. They feel a little earthquake. And when they get there, they see the stone rolled away. They see these angels talking to them and say, he's not here, he's risen. They go running back to, the, to Peter and John. And when they get back to Peter and John, they want to check it out. They think this is craziness. They're not predisposed to believe. They're like C.S. Lewis and others who, who, who were, they couldn't believe it. And so they, they go running and they both run together. And John gets there first, according to John's gospel. And then Peter shows up, but John doesn't go in. Peter does first and then he follows in. They see the linen cloths lying there. And John believes based on the linen cloths because no one would have left them behind. If the Shroud of Turin is an actually authentic uh, burial shroud of Christ, you look at that and you see this image of a man on this cloth and you think, how did that get there? Well, it makes a lot of sense if the glorified one, Jesus Christ, in his glory as he's coming out, that that's imprinted on the cloth. A photographic negative with the bright light of his countenance. And what you have is all the evidence points in that direction, that those things actually occurred, that the psychological change of the disciples was significant. And when I look at all that evidence, just those four things, and there's more, if I look at just those four things, I can say with Luke, with confidence, with certainty, the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that Jesus Christ died on a cross for us. 
He shed his blood, dying for our sins, paying a penalty that we owed but could not pay. Not in a million lifetimes could we ever pay what we owe. And yet in a moment, Jesus took care of it all. He paid it all. All to him we owe. He paid it all. And he made it possible for anyone who believes on Jesus to have life eternal. To become a child of God. And so Lord, as we have this time of communion together, may we remember what Jesus has done. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.